Why don't you go ahead and turn to 1 Kings. Okay, that's where we're going to be. While you're turning there, I want to give you this whole sermon in one sentence. And if you're able to write it down, that would be great. Foolishness is forgetting that your faith should be fueled by the fear of the Lord. That's where we're going this morning. Let me say it again. Foolishness is forgetting that your faith should be fueled by the fear of the Lord. And the title for the message this weekend is Wise Up. Wise Up. We're going to be touching down a bit in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Quite a bit of content. Uh, We don't have time to cover everything and every king, but we do have to talk about King Solomon because 1st Kings opens up with his story. If you'll remember, King David, in one of his not-so-fine moments, commits adultery with Bathsheba, but she gets pregnant, and then David has Bathsheba's husband killed so that he could marry her and cover up the scandal. The consequence for that sin was that this baby wouldn't live, and this whole thing just wrecks David, okay? And so he sincerely comes before the Lord, and he repents, And of course, God is faithful to forgive us our unrighteousness, right? So God forgives David. Eventually, Bathsheba, now one of David's many wives, gets pregnant again. And that baby is named Solomon. And, uh, you know, they dug out this picture from a cave over there in Israel. They found a picture of it. And so it's so great that we have that whole thing documented. It's wonderful. (laughs) Sometime later, uh, David makes this um, public declaration to all his officials and really anybody who was listening that Solomon was going to be the next king. When David is gone, Solomon would be the one to rule over Israel. And he declared that Solomon was going to be the one to build the temple of the Lord. Okay, so in 1 Kings... It opens up with King David on his deathbed, okay? He's around 70 years old, which is really not that old. Can I get some affirmation in the house? (laughs) Some people are like, it is not old. I refuse to believe it's old, man. So he's only around 70 years old, but how many of you know David had seen a lot of mileage? Yes. He had been in a lot of battles, many wars. He'd seen... Many nights sleeping in caves as he was running from King Saul. Later on, he was running from one of his sons that lost his ever-loving mind, Absalom, hiding in caves again. So here David is. He's old, can't even keep warm, okay, much less rule the kingdom. And in verse 5, it says, at that time, Adonijah, another one of David's sons, began to exalt himself, saying, I will be king. And he acquired chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run ahead of him. (laughs) Like Adonijah goes and pays to have an entourage. Okay, so he's a total poser. All right. It says that Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba come to David and they let David know about all the weird stuff Adonijah was doing. I am king. I am king. And so they remind him, David, you said that Solomon was going to be king. You declared to all these people 
that Solomon was going to be king. And so long story short, David immediately inaugurates Solomon as the next king of Israel. And so Solomon takes the throne. David's still alive, but Solomon is king. You open up 1 Kings chapter 2, the next chapter, and it says, As the time drew near for David to die, he charged his son Solomon. I'm about to die. So be strong and prove yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and keep his statutes, commands, ordinances, and decrees as it is written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And so that the Lord may fulfill his promise to me. His promise to me being, if your descendants take heed to walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And then if you read it, David goes on to tell Solomon about a few people that had betrayed him. Okay, he says, I want you to take these people out. I'm on my way out and I want you to finish something for me. I want you to punish these people that betrayed me. And then David dies. <laughs> like the last thing he said is punish those people. I guess he was, he was all ed up about it. You know what I'm saying? But he dies. He's gone. And Solomon, who's only around 20 years old, is the king. First Kings chapter three, you can flip on over. It says, then Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. Okay, so the very first thing Solomon does when he becomes king is he marries a foreign woman. Okay, it was super common in those days for kings to form alliances with other nations through marriage like this. Okay, but taking foreign wives was forbidden for Israel. So it may have been a good political move, but it was a terrible spiritual move. In fact, it was the beginning of King Solomon's spiritual downfall. And then when you read over on in chapter 11, it actually says King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, from the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them. Because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. That's roughly a thousand women. That's a lot of estrogen. It says, in fact... They did turn his heart away from the Lord. And Solomon worshipped other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, as his father, David, had been. If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had to address the same issue of men taking foreign wives. And he says, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? There was no one like King Solomon. God loved him and made him king over Israel. But pagan women caused even him to sin. We should pay attention to his failure and not sin against God by marrying foreign women. 
By the way, this is not a racial issue. Okay, this is a worship issue. Color and ethnicity wasn't God's problem with these people. His problem is that they were pagan. All right, God does not care what color the person you marry is. Amen? <laughs> he just wants you to choose someone that has chosen him. Can I get a hearty amen? amen. So here in chapter 3, at the beginning of his reign, it goes on to say that Solomon loved the Lord and did his best to follow his father's advice. And one day Solomon offers a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord, which communicates to me that Solomon really did love the Lord. Like he really did want to do right. <laughs> but it also communicates to me a thousand offerings. He didn't, <laughs> nobody offers a thousand offerings, right? It tells me that he really didn't know what he was doing now that he was king. And he's like, God, I need help. Help me. And it says that God receives Solomon's offering, hears his cry for help. And that night, verse 5, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God said, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Y'all, can you imagine what you want? Just tell me what you want. I mean, that's like a genie in the bottle, right? Everybody know what a genie in the bottle is? Genie used to live in the bottle. You rub the bottle. Genie comes out and gives you your three wishes or whatever. You get on How many of you grew up with I Dream of Genie? Raise your hand. Yes. I grew up watching reruns of I Dream of Genie. One time I was at my great-grandmother's house, and she, they had 50 of everything. They were hoarders or something. But she had all these cabinets with all these trinkets that she probably got from Canton, all these little jars and bottles and all this stuff. <laughs> And so one day I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight years old and I'm at one of those um, glass cases or whatever, open them up and I'm rubbing all the jars and bottles. And they're like, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for Jeannie. Never did find her. But God says, what do you want? Ask for anything and I will give it to you. And so Solomon says, oh, Lord, my God, you have made me king instead of my father, David. But I'm like a little child who does not know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous, they can't be counted. Here's what I need. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? Now, I love that David sees Israel as great enough to ask for wisdom to lead them. And like, I love you guys. And I love leading you. But I got to be honest. God comes to me and says, I'll give you anything you want. I'm going to be like, I need a new truck. Most of you are laughing because you've seen my truck, right? I need a new truck. I want a daily portion of blueberry cake donuts every morning when I walk into my office, right? Think about the things we gas for, and I want the abs that do not reflect all the donuts I'm eating. <laughs> Think about it. He could have asked for anything, riches, fame, a long life, but instead he asks for wisdom 
and discernment. And it says that the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. And so God says, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has had or ever will. And I will also give you what you did not ask for. Riches and fame. There's got to be a principle there, right? When you seek the right thing, God will take care of everything else. That sounds familiar. It's because Jesus said it. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added unto you. Amen? I love that. He says, no other king in the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me, listen to what he says. If you follow me and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I will also give you long life. And then it says that Solomon wakes up and realizes that it was a dream. Okay, so it was a dream, but it was a dream that came true. In 1 Kings 10, verse 23, it says that King Solomon was greater in which, uh, riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. He was the wisest guy that ever lived. And the very thing, the very next thing that we read in the scriptures gives us an idea of his wisdom. And I want to read this story because I just like the story. Is that okay? First Kings chapter three, starting in verse 16, it says, sometime later, two prostitutes came to the king to have an argument settled. Please, my Lord, one of them began, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a baby while she was with me in the house. Three days later, this woman also has a baby. We were alone. We're the only two in the house. But her baby died during the night when she rolled over on it. Then she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while I was asleep. She laid her dead baby in my arms and took mine to sleep beside her. And in the morning, when I tried to nurse my son, he was dead. But when I looked more closely in the morning light, I saw this isn't even my son. Then the other woman said, that's not true. It certainly was your son and the living child is mine. No, the living child is mine. The dead one is yours. And so they argue back and forth before the king. And so Solomon says, let's get the facts straight. Both of you claim the living child is yours. Each says that the dead one belongs to the other. Here, what are we going to do? Somebody go get me a sword. And everybody's like, what are you talking about, Willis? Right? He says, cut the living child in two and give half to one woman and half to the other. Problem solved. And then the woman who was the real mother of the living child who loved him very much cried out, oh no, my Lord, don't do that. Give her the child. She can have the child. Just don't kill him. But the other woman said, kill him. Chop him up. Neither one of us getting anything today. And so the king said, don't kill the child. Now we know who the real mother is. The one who loves the child is the one who doesn't want to kill them. And it says that when all Israel heard the king's decision, that the people were in awe of the king, for they saw the wisdom of God that God had given him for rendering justice. Now that's some smart thinking, right? That's just an example of how wise, this is just a beginning of all his displays of wisdom. I want you to listen to me. In his wisdom, Solomon answered lots of questions. 
He solved lots of problems. He made lots of deals. He acquired a ton of wealth, collected all kinds of stuff. We know that he built Israel's temple of worship. Remember, it was called Solomon's Temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, Solomon finishes that temple. And God says, if you stay faithful to me, I will establish your dynasty over Israel forever. And this temple will be holy. But if you abandon me, if you dis, uh, disobey my commands and turn your heart towards other gods, he says, then I will uproot Israel from this land. I will reject this temple. And I will make Israel an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by it will be appalled and will gasp in horror. They will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? And the answer will be because his people abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt. They worshiped other gods instead of, uh, instead of worshiping me. And they bowed down to them. That is why the Lord has brought all these disasters upon them. And so we know, we've already read that God told David, stay faithful. And on his deathbed, David told Solomon, obey God, stay faithful. And we've already read, God tells Solomon, God tells Solomon twice. It couldn't be more clear, right? And yet, when you get to 1 Kings 11, it says that Solomon loved many foreign women. And it goes on to say, in his old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God, as his father David had been. And listen to these gods that he worshipped. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth or Asherah. We've talked about some of these gods, so they might be familiar to you. It says that he worshipped Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. And then at the end of chapter 11, it says the rest of the events in Solomon's reign, including all of his deeds and all of his wisdom, are, re are recorded in the books of the Acts of Solomon. Okay, so there's a whole book dedicated to all the amazing things that so uh, Solomon accomplished in his life. And then in verse 42, it says, Solomon ruled in Jerusalem for 40 years. When he died, he was buried in the city of David, named after his father. And then his son, Rehoboam, became the next king. Now, we don't know if Solomon gave his son, Rehoboam, a parting speech like he got from his father, David. But what we do know is what must have been on Solomon's mind towards the end of his life. Because Solomon did a lot of writing. In the Bible, there are three books of wisdom. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. Solomon was the primary author of two of those. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then he wrote another book called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. I personally believe that Solomon wrote 
Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, when he was younger, before he ever even became king. I believe that he wrote Proverbs, like in the prime years of his kingship, like there in the middle years, and that he wrote Ecclesiastes when he was older, like much older, maybe even on his deathbed. And I read these books, and I've been reading them for years. I don't particularly enjoy Ecclesiastes. I don't know if anybody does, right? But I've been reading them. I've probably read you know, them a dozen times each. And when I read them, I see the stages of his spiritual health. For example, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. If you know anything about the Song of Songs, then you know that it's a collection of poems that explore and express love and sexual desire. It's not surprising that someone like Solomon, who had 1,000 lovers, would write poems and sonnets about this subject, right? And then think about what it's called, the Songs of Songs. The Song of Songs, which was a Hebrew way of expressing that something was like the greatest thing. Think of the holy of holies, right? And they called God uh, the Lord of Lords. And when Jesus comes, God in the flesh, they end up calling him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? These songs about love and romance were the Song of Songs. Point being... What Solomon was writing about was the best thing ever to him. But when you read the Song of Songs, you realize that this isn't just about sex. This was about love and sexual desire and fulfillment between one set of lovers. Not one man and a thousand women. Not one woman and a thousand men. Not two men sharing their love and having sex. Not two women sharing love and having sex. These poems were about one man, one woman finding each other, sharing their love, getting hot and heavy if you've ever read the book. And then they get separated by circumstances and they end up longing for one another and on the hunt for one another. Then they find each other again. It gets hot and heavy again. And then circumstances separate them again. And it's a cycle. You see that over and over and over when you read the book. I don't have time to explain why, but I believe that this one woman was Abishag, the Shunammite that took care of David in his old age. David, it says that he, he never had relations with her. And if you read the story, you learn that Adonijah, remember the, the son that said, I will be king. Well, he didn't become king. Solomon becomes king. And sometime after Solomon becomes king, Adonijah goes to Bathsheba and says, hey, can you ask Solomon if I can take Abishag as my wife? And so she goes in and asks Solomon. And if, if you read the story, it says Solomon loses his lid. Like he is furious. How could he ask that of me. How could you come in here, mom, and ask that of me? It's like, whoa, read it. It's great. Anyway, I believe that Solomon wrote this when he was a young man. I think it was a reflection 
of his relationship with Abishag. I also think that he would read this book that he wrote when he was an old man. And I think that he wished desperately that his faith had been fueled by the fear of the Lord instead of foolishly compromising the love of his life. Somebody in this room needs to hear that this morning. You're on the verge of foolishly compromising the love of your life. And I'm telling you, don't do it. You'll be like Solomon who regrets it. Instead, let your faith be fueled by the fear of the Lord. If you do, you won't be foolish and you won't make that foolish mistake. Amen? But that is what happens when we don't let the fear of the Lord fuel our faith. We end up making stupid decisions. Our faith becomes diluted. Our focus becomes distracted. Amen? Speaking of the fear of the Lord, let's look at Proverbs. Proverbs. Proverbs is called the book of wisdom and it was mostly written by Solomon. The big idea of the book is that by reading this book, you too can gain wisdom. All you got to do is read it and you can also be wise. And something that you read over and over and over in this good is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You see it in all kinds of form. And you also read the opposite. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, when Solomon says the fear of the Lord, he doesn't mean terror. Oh, the, the terror of the Lord. Like you got to be terrified of the Lord. I mean, we should be terrified of the Lord. But that's not really what he's talking about. Let me give you a working definition of the fear of the Lord. Okay, write this down. The fear of the Lord is a healthy sense of reverence and awe for God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. A healthy sense of reverence and awe for God. Okay, so the fear of the Lord is knowing where you fit in the equation. He is God and I'm not. I don't get to make up my own definitions of what right is and what wrong is. Amen? I mean, this is the basic child-rearing, you know, philosophy. This, this, is, this isn't rocket science. In fact, the first main section of Proverbs is 10 speeches from a father to a son. These are writings about how a son should listen to wisdom and cultivate the fear of the Lord in his life and how foolishness is forgetting that your faith should be fueled by the fear of the Lord. And the rest of the book really follows that, uh, that principle. And then you also have four poems that contain insight from Lady Wisdom. Everybody say, Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom. Let's watch this video for more insight. What kind of world are we living in? And what does it look like to live well in this world? So how to be good at life. Yeah. So Proverbs would be like this brilliant young teacher. And she's not just smart. She's smart about everything. Work, relationships, sex, spirituality. She has incredible insights. Things you wouldn't see on your own. Yeah, she would be the perfect friend to have around when you need really specific advice. So what makes her so smart? Well, Proverbs can see things that most people don't see. She believes that there's an invisible creative force in the universe that can guide people in how they should live. And you can't see it, just like you can't see gravity, but it affects everything that we do. So what's this force? Well, in Hebrew, it's called chokhmah, 
and it usually gets translated into English as wisdom. It's an attribute of God that God used to create the world. And chokmah has been woven into the fabric of things and how they work. So wherever people are making good or just or wise decisions, they're tapping into chokmah. And whenever someone's making a bad decision, they're working against chokmah. Right, or as it says in Proverbs chapter 1, the waywardness of fools will destroy them, but the one who listens to wisdom lives in security. So it's like a moral law of the universe. Yeah, it's a cause-effect pattern, and no one can escape it. And Proverbs personifies all of this as a woman. Yeah, Lady Wisdom. Right, and she roams around the earth calling out, making herself available to anyone who's willing to listen to her and to learn. Which leads to the second thing Proverbs believes, that anyone can access and interact with wisdom and use it to make a beautiful life for yourself or for others. You can create with it like a designer. Yes, in fact, chokmah in Hebrew isn't simply intellectual knowledge. The word is also used to describe a skilled artisan who excels at their craft, like woodworking or stonemasonry. So you show you possess chokmah when you put it to work and develop the skill of making a good life. Okay, that makes sense. So let's do this. Let's go find some wisdom. But before you do, Proverbs has one more really important thing to consider. Chokmah isn't some impersonal force. It's an attribute of God himself. And so in Hebrew thought, your journey to becoming wise has to begin with what Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord. It's this healthy respect for God's definition of good and evil. And true wisdom means learning those boundary lines and not crossing them. Now, all those ideas you just unpacked are in chapters 1 through 9 in Proverbs. But when I think of the book of Proverbs, I think of the collection of sayings, the Proverbs themselves. Tell me about those. Yeah, those are what you find in chapters 10 on to the end of the book. It's a collection of hundreds and hundreds of Proverbs about any and all aspects of life. And chokmah gets applied to them, resulting in this wise guidance to help you find a path towards success and no matter what you do. If I design my life with these sayings, life is going to be good. Yeah, or as Proverbs puts it, it'll give health to your bones, prosperity, a long, rich life. Which is a really big claim. But you can see how it's often the case. Wise people, they tend to do better. Things usually work out well for them in life. And so that is the promise and the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. Good. That's very helpful, isn't it? Yeah. So these 14 speeches that we were talking about, the 10 from the Father, the 4 from Lady Wisdom, you can't just read these as tidbits of advice, okay? Proverbs is like God's invitation to live well in the world that he's created for us. And to do that, you need wisdom. And to get wisdom, you need the fear of the Lord, okay? But it's also not formulaic, okay? Like, do this and this will happen or don't do this and that won't happen. You know what I'm saying? Like that verse, train up a child in the way they should go and they will not depart from it. Well, that's, it's not guaranteed. It's just a rule of thumb. Amen. How many of you know that? You could say that Proverbs is about probabilities. My kids have a greater probability of following after God if I have trained them up with a healthy fear of the Lord. Amen? The book of Proverbs is full of statements that are really, they're general rules of thumb. 
but there's always the exception to that rule. Amen? I know that's hard to understand. And I believe Solomon learns this. He realizes this at the end of his life, which is when I personally believe that he wrote Ecclesiastes. Check this out. You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic? Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down. And he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time. Or as the critic says... Generations come and generations go, but the earth, it's been here long before us and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago and all the people yet to come, they too will be forgotten by those who come after them. So on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blip. Stars are born and then they die and form planets which orbit new stars. And those planets, they change over time and eventually burn up. And amidst this cosmic backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time. Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation that we are all going to die. Humans face the same fate as the animals, death. All people, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not, they all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness, then we all join the dead. Man, this book is depressing. And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature. So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause and effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded. But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance, or in his words. The race doesn't always go to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food always come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So his point is that you can't really control anything in life. It's just way too unpredictable. So if I want to master life... Then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times he says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious. It takes one shape, and before you know it, it takes a new shape. And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly. Now, our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate hevel as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting and uncontrollable. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? 
Well, surprisingly, the critic first of all acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says it's a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the Lord. Really? I mean, he just said that doesn't guarantee success. But he knows it's the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that's your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, or the sun on your face, or a good meal with people that you care about. The simple things in life. Yes, and both the good things and the bad, because both are rich gifts from God. And that's the surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places. And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. He doesn't want you to lose hope. He wants to make you humble into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the heaven and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, when you're, when you're younger, it's hard to imagine the ways sometime in the future that you could get off track. How you can miss the mark. I think in some ways when we're young, we think we never will. We will always be whatever, whatever that goal. If the goal is to go for God, that's what I'll do. Or if the goal is to do this or that, that's what I'm going to do. And it's not until you're older, maybe even much older, that you realize a lot of life was like grasping for that key that was made out of smoke. And you find yourself disappointed at things that you've been and things that you've done that you never could have imagined you doing. And we have these regrets, this desire for do-overs. Someone amazing like Solomon, who had a heart for God in the beginning, give me wisdom and discernment. No, I'm not worried about riches. I just want to govern this great people. Super noble. I doubt that he would have imagined that by marrying that Egyptian daughter that it would have sent him on a trail that led to some weird stuff. But he did. I hate that for old Solomon. I hate that for anyone who's lived a life and only at the end realize the things that they've given up. And so I'm grateful for books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, even though it's a little depressing, it is a reminder. Stop grasping for things. Stop trying to do things on your own. Solomon's marriage to that Egyptian woman, it was to secure peace, maybe to secure riches. He didn't need to do that, did he? God had already promised him the stuff. And we're the same way. We try to do things out of, um, uh, of these ambitions. And that ambition really can be um, with the fear of the Lord somewhere over on the side. 
And even in our faith, we can move forward in our faith. But what, are, what was our motivation? Think about the times you've been motivation to, to grow in your faith or do better in the faith or go further in the faith because you're trying to get rid of guilt. You're trying to cover your own shame. You're trying to work your way to God or all the things that are not grace-oriented but works-oriented. If we'll just walk in the fear of the Lord, let our faith be fueled by that instead of hevel, things that are just like a vapor. It really balances out our heart, and we find that our contentment is in Him and Him alone, not stuff, not wealth, not pleasures, not fame, not fortune, none of those things. I want us to ask ourselves three questions tonight. I want you to take these on into the uh, rest of the service, but I also want you to take them home with you and just ponder over the next coming, uh, coming days or weeks or whatever. And, and number one is, am I walking in the fear of the Lord? Like for me personally, am I walking in the fear of the Lord? Is my faith fueled by the fear of the Lord? It's something we have to ask, those personal assessments that we do from time to time. The second thing is similar, but what is fueling my faith? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Why did I come to church today? Why did I open my Bible or pray? Why am I involved in this? Is it religion or is it relationship? What is fueling my faith? Is it my first love or is it my last sin that I'm trying to cover over? And then the third question I'd love for you guys to ponder is, what is foolish in my life right now? What in my life is just foolishness? Like it makes no sense. Like I'm, I'm pursuing this thing or that relationship and it's, it's not right. Everybody around me is telling me it's not right. But I'm like Solomon. I won't listen. And I've convinced myself that I can grab that smoke key and unlock the thing that I want. The problem is, is where was your motivation? What's fueling that? Those are three great questions that I want you to ask and see what the Lord would show you. Because in the end, I believe that the Lord would protect you from a lot of disappointment in life. Amen.